0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: Hi Kirsty Melville with you for The History Listen. And today we're kicking off the series The Sands of Aldea by former colleague and producer Mike Ladd. In this first episode, Mike discovers the indigenous history of this remote South Australian site. Yuldi. Yuldi Gapi, Yuldinga. Yulday.
0: Yuldu. Yuldi. Uldie.
1: Ulde. Uldir.
2: Here we
3: are on the Transnational Railway Line at Aldea. Perth, 2,000 kilometers to the west, that way. Sydney, 2,000 kilometers to the east, that way. And just west of here is where they joined the line. Two teams working from either side. And I'm walking along now. The longest straight section of railway in the world. 478 kilometres of dead straight track. Hi, Mike Ladd with you for the History Listen and the beginning of our series, The Sands of Aldea. But why should Aldea, an obscure railway siding on the edge of the Nullarbor, have its own series? Well, so much happened here. Aldea's water soak, Yuligapi, is one of the most important Aboriginal sites in Australia. Trading routes and dreaming stories crossed here for thousands of years. It's Kapipulka big water, always there under the white sands in a hollow surrounded by red dunes. The Transnational Railway was joined close to here in 1917. And in just 20 years, the railways had pumped the soak dry, filling up steam trains with water that had kept the desert people alive for millennia. It's just so emblematic of the colonial collision of mines of ways and means of being in the land. Daisy Bates lived here for 16 years in a tent. The mission came and went, and the British tested their nuclear bombs just north at Maralinga. Not a lot to see, little dear now just the verticality of the Telstra tower dominating the landscape and the horizontal line of the track stretching east-west as far as you can see a few piles of ballast and some old rails but no sign of the station houses or the fettlers huts BHP steel.
2: It's a very important place. It was a big gathering place for ceremonies before the white men came along and noticed there was water there. And um, you know, people come far and wide to meet Arudia, from inside the desert, from the coastal areas, even right up to Broome. People come in for ceremonies, trade. You know, there were people everywhere. And they don't never, they never grow, walk around in big groups. <clears throat> the bigger the group, the more mouth you got to feed. But they had everything out here. They knew where to go. They knew which road to take. They had the chemists, they had everything, food, fuel, which is water, to keep them going.
3: Chair of the Maralinga Jarritja Council, Jeremy LeBoyce.
2: My grandmother was born on, on the land around Punja. Which is on the um, the main walking track for a lot of the traditional owners that follows to to get them down towards Uldia. So they basically just follow waterholes after waterholes, hunt and gather along the way. She was a woman. She spoke Yankunja and Pindara. also understand the Wirangu language. She married a Wirunga man, which is my father's father. But he was a Wirunga man from the south, down on the coastal area, but came up and lived with the Anonga people at Aldea. And um, so anyway, my grandmother found out this place called Kuniba, 30 kilometers west of Sajuna, a children's home. She got sick and tired of running around, keeping away from Daisy Bates, because she was after the sun. So she walked from out of the desert down to Yelida, put my dad on the truck, and um, off to Kuniba. Then she thought that it'd be better off for him to go down there and get educated. My grandmother, she was living a traditional life. They used to have a suitcase on the dog fence this side of Pranong and that suitcase was to have clothes in so when she walks out of the desert and get to there she puts clothes on and then she goes inside the fence with clothes on she goes in there every time Christmas and that to see dad and um, once she spent time with him then she used to walk back out in the desert mm. get back to the dog fence and then Take her clothes off, put it in a suitcase, put it in the tree, and then she's gone.
4: Historian Tom Gara. For a long time it was thought that Central Australia hadn't really been occupied until comparatively recent times, after the end of the Ice Age. They thought that Aboriginal people moved into the central deserts about 10-12 thousand years ago when conditions got better. But since that time they've found numerous dates from Central Australia of and thousand, so they know that people virtually occupied the whole of Australia not long after settling the continent in 60-70 thousand years ago. Allen's Cave and Kunalda Cave are only about 20 kilometres from the coast now, but in, when they occupied 40,000 years ago, they were 150 kilometres from the coast, and there was a vast coastal sandy plain stretching out from the Nullarbor Cliffs, and so people were coming from the coast inland as far as Kunalda and Allen's Cave, and doing art in the caves, and leaving stone tools and shellfish, etc. there. But that's certainly been dated at 30 or 40,000 years, and that's probably 100 kilometres south of Aldea. so... It's likely that the area has been occupied for a long, long time. Ordea is right on the northern edge of the Nullarbor Plain where the trees largely stop and the sand hills of the Great Victoria Desert start. It's always been a really important place for the Aboriginal people as the only permanent water known for hundreds of square kilometres around. And there's a vast archaeological site. I've been there a few times and it's always a fascinating place to visit. I've seen many Aboriginal campsites and um, this just goes on for miles and miles, and there must be millions of stone artefacts of all sorts. Usually you just find one or two stone types at a campsite, but this has got quartz pebbles from hundreds of miles away, um, it's got flint from hundreds of miles away on Nullarbor Plain, chalcedonies and other fine-grained stones that have probably come from Andamooka Way. and I remember finding a bit of fossilised coal, which was probably from the Kimberleys, And one of the archaeologists i was with found a big crystal was amethyst the missionaries always reported that aboriginal people brought in nuggets of gold into aldea just this incredible array of material there shows that people were coming there from hundreds of kilometers away they were coming there because aldea was the only permanent water in in the whole eastern section of the great victoria desert everyone had to come to aldea essentially if if they wanted to survive it was also a major trade center because all those people who were coming in would bring their own particular items and they trade them there. The coastal people traded wombat fur, but I mean wooden artifacts and things were also being traded there. They're just lying on the surface, lying on the surface of the sandhills. Um, if you dig down in the sandhills, there's more and more all the time. It's, there's just millions of them.
2: Trading boomerang or they trade ochre for ochre down here or they trade seashells. Or other tools, mm. just for ochre. Yeah, and ochre was the main source. You know, they a lot of people trade anything to get to get a hand on ochre. Also, that's a time of young men finding woman from this country. Um, ceremony used to be there a lot. Initiation. Yes, and then that's other way of moving around the country and breeding into other areas. Yeah.
3: Guppy is Western Desert language for water, and I'm looking here at a 1942 map of guppy tracks across the whole of Central Australia. They spread out like filaments of an enormous spider's web with a central node right here at Ordea.
4: All the water sources that were known were linked and people would travel along those waterhole routes across the desert and they'd often be 20 or 30 miles apart about a day's travel. But Tyndale and Burnt and other anthropologists have all recorded these water routes crisscrossing the desert from the Musgrave ranges in the north down to Aldea.
3: It's thought that Uldea Soak originally belonged to the Wurungu.
4: Daisy, Bates and other later anthropologists thought that the Wurungu were displaced by the Kukata tribe from the desert and subsequently other desert tribes also came in and displaced the Kukata. Um, in that western desert area, the, the term tribe is somewhat of a misnomer. All the groups are very closely related. They all spoke similar dialects. They were all intermarried and they share the same mythology. So some people say there was just one desert people
3: Udea is also the site of multiple intersecting stories. Emu, Watikutjara, the two men dreaming, Ganba, the giant snake, Watikinika, native catman, Malukutjara, the two kangaroo dreaming, Watipira, moon man, and Kabaji, the stick nest rat. Daisy Bates published these stories in detail, but it's not my place to repeat them here.
2: It was a sacred place, um, even though people lived in there. Today, it's, we look at it as sacred because what happened, we've, you know, people lived there, people moved there, people died there.
3: Going back to before Daisy Bates, like right back to the beginning, is there creation stories of Aldea? And I don't know if you can tell them or not, but if you can't, that's not a problem. We'll move on back. Yep, no, we'll, there
2: is a lot of lot of stuff like that, but nothing yeah, I can't say. Okay. Fair enough.
3: Right after I asked that question, sitting there with Jeremy LeBois under the Desert Oaks, the levels on my tape recorder went berserk i swear i hadn't touched it the next recording was fine so i really can't explain it in 1929 the anthropologist e.h davies set up his wax cylinder recording apparatus at aldea the original cylinders are still in the south australian museum but the recordings are too sacred to broadcast however the marilinga juricha elders have given us permission to hear this one because it's a secular play about song. Extraordinary to hear that voice emerge from the sands of Aldea. I wonder what the people made of Davy's Edison recorder, the funnel gulping down their voices, just as the trains were gulping the waters of their ancient soak. First contact at Aldea happened sometime around 1868.
4: Two white blokes, local well sinkers on the Fowler's Bay area, Venning and Howie. They apparently were led out to Aldea by an Aboriginal guide, uh, and they were quite impressed with the amount of water there. They subsequently told police trooper Richards at Fowler's Bay, and he went out there, and then in 1875, Richards took Ernest Giles out there on Ernest Giles's expedition where we crossed from Aldea to the WA coast eventually.
0: Having reached the northern edge of the plain we had been traversing we now entered the bed of sand hills and scrub which lay before us and following the tracks of the two blackfellows with the camels as there was no road to Yulde, we came in five miles to a spot where without the slightest indication to point out such a thing except that we descended into lower ground there existed a shallow native well in the sandy ground of a small hollow between the red sand hills. And this spot, the black said, was Yulde. Water was easily procurable at a depth of between three and four feet, and all the animals drank as much as they desired, being watered with canvas buckets. While encamped here, we found Yulde to be a fearful place. The ants, flies and heat being each intolerable. We were at the bottom of a sandy funnel into which the fiery beams of the sun were poured in burning rays and the radiation of heat from the sandy country around it made it all the hotter. Not a breath of air could be had as we lay or sat panting in the shade we had erected with our tarpaulins. There was no view for more than a hundred yards anywhere unless one climbed to the top of a sand hill And then other sand hills all around only were to be seen. Ernest Giles, 1875.
3: Morris, Tytkins and other explorers, as well as itinerant kangaroo shooters, passed through Ordea, But epoch-changing contact came with the building of the Transnational Railway.
2: That was the first disaster.
4: Two major droughts, one from 1914 to 18. Um, which was apparently Australia's worst drought. The River Maui dried up to a chain of water holes. That's the drought that caused Pichetanjara and Yankatajara people from the north to migrate south to Aldea and also caused lots of other spinifex people to move into Aldea as well. Unfortunately, that coincided with the construction of the railway line. So just when these people were heading south into Aldea to get their water from their normal drought refuge, hundreds or thousands of navvies suddenly appeared along the line So these bush people who'd never seen white people before suddenly found hundreds of them there.
3: Many of the old carriages used on the Trans-Australian are now in the National Railway Museum at Port Adelaide. Inside the original grocery van on the tea and sugar supply train is where I met director Bob Sampson.
5: The government decided in 1901 that it would actually build a railway line to link uh, Perth with the eastern states. So after the passing of a few years and uh, so forth and planning, um, turning of the first sod to construct the railway, the Trans-Australian Railway, a standard gauge railway, from Port Augusta to Kalgoorlie, commenced in 1912 from Port Augusta and at the same time in 1913 from Kalgoorlie. So there was two track building teams and they worked towards each other for five years until they uh, finally met just west of Day, out on the, the true Nullarbor.
3: Yes, he calls Aldea all day. That's the railway tradition. Ploughing the straight line of the trans, cutting a parallel into the skin of the country, was as stark an image of the colonial enterprise as you could have. So opposite to the First Peoples curving, looping guppy tracks from soak to soak. The only penetration of the earth they're digging for water or bandicoot or night shelters from the desert wind. Excavations that within weeks would be healed again by the drifting sands
0: deer Sandhills defied all comers. So in this case, men were sent out far in advance and began the battle 100 miles in advance of the rails. All their supplies had to be brought by camel and the labor of it may be imagined. Here, the groups had to excavate within the space of 25 miles, no less than 1 million cubic yards. Anonymous.
5: talking about hundreds of camels and horses on both teams uh did it very much uh old-fashioned way of just little scoops and and camels carrying uh well even sleepers over the sides of them and very much manual pick and shovel and really tough going the only modern bit of equipment if you can call it that is what they call two track laying machines they're almost uh, doctor who-ish in style with with derrick booms and ropes and things. The track laying machines really aided in some of the carrying of the sleepers and rails, and that was about it. It was still a lot of a lot of labor work done to do it.
3: Would have been tough, wouldn't it? Like, you imagine working out there in the summer heat, carrying jarro well, planks all day.
5: Yeah, definitely, and, and I have to say, and I've been there a few times, there is such a temperature variance within 24-hour periods. So it can go from zero, if you like, to nearly 50 in 24 hours on numerous days. Blow holes, the Nullarbor's got some fascinating stuff on it. The biggest huntsman spiders, I think they call them desert huntsmen. I mean they're about the size of a dinner plate, you can hear them coming.
3: The first train on the completed line came through on the 22nd of October, 1917.
1: A thunder came from the plane. All rose in terror to watch, wild-eyed, the monster of Nullarbor, the Ganba snake coming to devour them. I needed all my tact and wisdom to prevent their flight. Daisy Bates.
6: Certainly there was this mythology about the, the rumblings that you would hear under the plane. You know, as we know, there are, there are hundreds if not thousands of underground caves and um, sounds are reproduced and ripple through that landscape. People had this shared belief that there was a giant serpent gunboat under there.
3: Writer and curator Philip Jones.
6: So when the, um, when the train comes through for these new people who've come out from the north, um, that was their first reaction. That they're actually seeing the serpent that they knew was there.
3: I'm at the Whistling Rocks blowhole on the Eyre Peninsula. The sea rolls in against the cliffs here and forces air up through the caves, through these cracks in the rocks further inland. No wonder the Aborigines thought it was the breath of Ganba, the great Create a serpent of the Nullarbor. And no wonder when they first saw the steam train coming, they thought it was Gamba emerging from underground and winding his way across the plain.
5: Uh, one of the prize uh, items in the collection at the museum is um, steam locomotive G1, the first steam locomotive to run across the Nullarbor. So, this train would have been filled
3: from the soak?
5: Look, uh, particularly in the, that earlier period of time, uh, virtually all of the steam trains across the Nullarbor would have uh, replenished the water supply at, uh, at all day. Aboriginal
3: people saw their ancient soak rapidly transformed. Station buildings, fettlers' huts, bores and pipes appeared and the protective ring of desert black oaks was cut down for firewood to fuel water condensers for the steam trains. Camels and goats trampled the vegetation. The sand began to drift, native species to vanish. The railway changed everything.
4: They soon adapted to it and within five or so years they were happily travelling east and west as far as they could, whenever they could. Hop on a freight train and hitchhike to Kalgoorlie or Laverton or eastwards to Tarkoola or Kungunya or Port Augusta and then catch the next freight train back. The tea and sugar train which serviced the fettlers and things along the line, the butcher on that would sell the Aboriginal people the heads and offal etc of the cattle and sheep he was killing on the train. But initially, of course, there are lots of problems from the desert people coming into contact with the navvies for the first time and being introduced to alcohol, and there were rumours of the Aboriginal men prostituting their women to the Navies for alcohol and things like that. There were rumours of people dying from disease introduced by the whites, and that's what prompted Daisy Bates to go out there.
1: In the building of the transcontinental line, the water of Aldea passed out of its own people's hand forever. Pipelines and pumping plants reduced it at the rate of 10,000 gallons a day for locomotives. The natives were forbidden the soak, and permitted to obtain their water only from taps at the siding. The train was their undoing. Amongst the hundreds that sat down with me at Uldir, there was not one that ever returned to his own waters and the natural bush
6: life.
3: A year before Daisy Bates arrived at Aldea Siding, a man named A.G. Bolam had started working there as a porter. He was promoted to Station Master and stayed until 1925. An amateur naturalist and photographer, Bolam was a remarkable man who deserves to be better known. No
6: college-trained naturalist, am I. But a railwayman, who in the odd moments, when he has not been giving the right-of-way to trains or taking down the tic-tac of the telegraph, has been taught his lessons in natural history by the greatest masters of the subject, the blacks at Aldea.
3: Though he used the terminology of his times, he had an advanced attitude towards Aboriginal people. When you observe
6: these blacks at Aldea, begging backer or a coin, I would implore you not to imagine that they have always been so degraded-looking, but to reflect that you are viewing the victims of our flaunted civilization. Let me say right here that the blacks are highly intelligent and in many respects vastly superior to their white detractors. If their intelligence were of such a low order as their detractors would like us to believe, the blacks would be quite incapable of so readily copying the habits of the whites even of enlisting, as many of them did, and fighting for freedom on the fields of France. They are wonderful men in the bush, living well in a country where whites would die in no time from thirst or hunger. In
3: 1923, Boland published a gem of a book called The Trans-Australian Wonderland. In it, his excitement about Udea's natural environment and native animals is palpable. Sadly, almost all those animals have now been driven to local extinction by cats, foxes, and land clearing.
6: The marsupial mole, the mole or blind sand burrower, is known to the blacks as Arajaraja and is probably the most The kangaroo mouse is a pretty little fellow. This little chap resembles a kangaroo. Having Another born bones. architect is the house building rat. It is remarkable for the fact that it builds for itself.
3: Bolam also took some extraordinary photos of Daisy Bates and her interactions with the Aboriginal people who came to visit her camp at Uldea, And Daisy is the subject of the next episode of the series. Our readers were Mark Saturno, Lizzie Falkland and Chris Pittman. Music was by Jakub Gaudershinski, sound engineering by Tom Henry and production was by me, Mike Latt. I hope you can join me for part two of The Sands of Uldea. Here on the History Listen, or download the whole series now from our website.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.